Welcome to the Be Brave podcast, where ordinary, badass, brave women speak their stories of courage and strength. We hope that by hearing the struggles and successes of women just like you, it will help you be brave. Please note that the Be Brave podcast does cover adult topics that include overcoming adversity in areas of sexual abuse, addiction, depression, and other difficult experiences. Hello, everyone. Today, our guest is Kim, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about her background. In September of 2001, Kim experienced the unimaginable. While five months pregnant with her second son, her husband, Derek, was killed in the September 11, 2001 terrorist attack. He worked in Tower 2 of the World Trade Center. At 30 years old, Kim became a widow with a one-year-old son and another on the way. Uh, because of the trauma that she and her kids experienced, Kim has made it her mission to help children and families struggling with trauma. She spent many years serving as a guardian ad litem in her community. Uh, she's also a Stevens minister within her church. For those of you who don't know who a Stevens minister is, they provide one-to-one care for those experiencing grief, loss, and trauma. Kim is also looking into becoming an end-of-life doula, also known as a death doula, which I had not heard of. This sounds very cool, though, as another way of helping families process their grief. Uh, Flash forward to 2021, Kim is now an empty nester. She has lived in North Carolina since 2004 and has enjoyed a rich life despite the tragedy. She remarried, but is recently divorced, and Kim is loving, living alone for the first time in her life. Uh, Kim's sons are in college, and she is embracing this new chapter. One other thing that Kim mentions, which I really love, she realized how grief is an integral part of all of our lives. It's often diminished, overlooked, or not dealt with, which I think is so true. We all experience loss and need to grieve those losses, and losses could be anything from moving, a death, a divorce, a job loss, or getting a diagnosis. So um, I'm interested in hearing all of your story, Kim. Kim, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your story. Kara has said a few times on this podcast, she found something on Facebook that says, when you share your story, it could act or provide someone else a survival guide. So I'm so grateful that you're here with us to speak about your tragedy and hopefully allow someone else to have a survival guide through you, which seems to be how you've set up your life. So I would love, I know your husband, your deceased husband's name is Derek, and I would love for you to share with us how you first met Derek. Thank you for having me. And so I met Derek in 1996. I was supposed to go into the Peace Corps, and I had two friends from Virginia. They had never been to New York before. And so we were, we came, they came up to Connecticut. We took the train into New York. We were going to spend the whole night there. I was 24, no, I was 25 years old. And it was going to be a last hurrah. So we went into the city. We didn't really know where to go. We went to this bar 
two in the morning and Derek was at the bar with his friend and started talking to my friends. And then at the end of the night, like four in the morning, he gave me his business card, told him to call him and he put us in a cab to, to Grand Central. So that was how I met him. I called him Tuesday. I waited the you know appropriate number of days and called him and had called his voicemail to know how to say his last name because it was difficult. And then I saw him the next weekend, and then we were together ever since then. So that was uh, June of 1996 that we had met. That is so cute. I love that. Yeah. So I never went in the Peace Corps. <laughs> <laughs> was it because of Derek that you never went in the Peace Corps? Um, it was partly that, and then partly I had a health something I had to take care of health wise, and so it just worked out. By the time I was going to go, he and I were already engaged, and I didn't go. Oh, I, I didn't regret it. <laughs> That's sweet. So you were living in Connecticut at the time, and was Derek in Connecticut or in New York? Uh, he lived in New York City. He lived in Manhattan, and he was working at J.P. Morgan at the time. He had just gotten a job there. So the joke was, when Derek met me, was when Derek Jeter was doing really well for the Yankees, and Derek was a big Yankees fan. And so it was like, oh, the Derricks are in the house. Like, they're getting it going, going on. Derek had gotten a new job. He met me. And so he and his friends would joke about that. So. <laughs> That's awesome. But I think Derek Jeter probably did well his entire career. Yeah, <laughs> he did. <laughs> he did. That was at the beginning, I guess. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, know. it probably was. I don't know how long ago that was, but okay. So tell us the story about, you know, what happened. Um, and here we are. I, I just want to, for our listeners, right now, as we speak, it's August 30th, 2021. So in about 13 days, we will have the 20-year anniversary of what we know as 9-11, the tragedy that happened with the terrorist attacks, not only on the World Trade Center, but in um, you know the Pentagon and in Pennsylvania as well. So please, if you could, Kim, set up, set up your day if you can go through this. And I wish I could, uh, we're on Zoom here um, and we're all in different states, but if you know, tissues are right next to me right now. Okay. <laughs> so fast forward, I met Derek in 96. We got married in January 98. Um, had my oldest son, Tyler. Oh, sorry. We moved to Connecticut, bought a house and moved to Connecticut in June of 99. And then I had Tyler in August of 2000 and became pregnant again in April of 2001. So I was pregnant the summer before September 11th. And I had a lot of, I don't want to call them premonitions or visions, but just little things that happened that I, in retrospect, I'm like, huh, I wonder if God or I was getting prepared for what was to happen. So one example was, you know, it used to bother me that he worked in the World Trade Center. And when he would fly to go somewhere, I'd be like, oh, what's your flight number? And he would joke around, oh, it's death flight number 612. Or, Cause I had this thing, the superstition that if there were three numbers, those were more likely to have a problem than if there were four numbers. Cause I don't know why. Anyway, so that was one thing. And then he had never owned his own car because he'd lived in the city. And, and when he was in high school, he didn't have one. So when he turned 30, he wanted his own car and he was going to lease the car. And I was like, well, what happens if something happens to you and you die? Am I responsible for this? But I mean, we were 30 years old. So why would you think, why would I be thinking like that? But I don't know if it's because I was pregnant and I was just hyper aware that if he left me, if he died, that I would be stuck with two kids. And what would I do? Because I was a stay-at-home mom or what? And then over the summer, 
about three weeks before the 11th, I was in our pool with a friend and she had been a single mom. And I had said, I don't know what I would do if something ever happened to Derek. I'd never be able to live by myself with these kids. And I don't know how you did it. I'm not that strong. I would never be able to, to make it through. And three weeks later, there, there we were. And I was in that exact situation. Wow. So Tyler turned one, August 18th. And then the week of Labor Day, Derek and I took a vacation and we went to the Outer Banks in North Carolina with Tyler. And he got back Saturday. The We got back Saturday was the 8th. Yes, the 8th. And he went to work on the 10th, his first day back. For some reason, I kept Tyler up that night. And I remember him coming in and, and hugging Tyler and telling him how much he loved him. And I, I was grateful that I had done that. I didn't know the next day that was it. We weren't going to see Derek again. So he had to be at work at 7.30 for the morning meeting. And prior to the 11th, there was talk that his company was going to get bought by a French firm. And so he called me on the 11th at, I don't know, 8 o'clock. He told me that they, they didn't announce anything yet. And then he called me back again about 10 till 9 and asked me that I was watching Barney with my son, Tyler. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I was five months pregnant. And he said, are you watching TV? And I said, I'm watching Barney. And he said, oh, turn on the TV. A plane hit tower one. Um, I'm going to go to the trading floor and see what's going on on the TVs. So he went to the trading floor. He called me back at 8.57. And the other weird thing was at the time we didn't have caller ID, but we had a free month of caller ID or something. So that day I knew exactly when he called because I had record of it caller ID on the home phone. Um, and also when everyone else called, then I could see who was calling, if it was reporters or who, I mean, that was a godsend to have that. Wow. So he called me back at three minutes to nine. He said, Kim, where's the plane? And I said, it's in the building. And he sounded very uh, ramped up. And, but I thought, yeah, Derek can get excitable sometimes. So that's probably why. So he, I said, can you see the smoke? And he said, I can smell the smoke at my desk, Kim. I said, well, you should go. And he said, yeah, we're leaving. We're going now. So he hung up with me. They were on the 89th floor of Tower 2. And he and a group of people also in the research department started to walk down the flights of stairs. And um, I never heard from him again that morning. But I heard from other people that he had been with, the wives of people he had been with, who said, yes, Derek was with all the kids, all the kids, all the guys from research. Um, they had started getting walking down. They got to the 82nd floor. There was an explosion in front of them. That would have been when the plane hit Tower 2. And they were acting in a very orderly manner. They were putting cloths over their face because there was black smoke and they were waiting for emergency personnel. So that was all that I knew. And I don't know. I didn't know that right away. I knew he was leaving, but I didn't I didn't know the rest probably till the end of the day. Question. Sometime. Question. Yes. How did you even have that information? So I know it's hard to remember 20 years ago, like how I had that information. Because presumably the the people who would have reported that information were with him and they all would have perished, I would think. Well, they called their spouses while they were. So Derek in the stairwell, somebody called somebody's spouse. Okay, got it. So it was never confirmed that Derek was with them. But when I asked her, this other widow, she said, oh, yeah, Derek would have been with them. And I knew he had left. So the assumption is he is, he was. Yeah. However, what's interesting too, is I did receive remains 
months later. And I don't know that the, anybody else in that group did. I don't know. You know, I, there were people I didn't know well enough to talk to. So then it does make me think, well, was he with them? But that's the story that I go with is that he was with them because I, I believe he would have gone down there. But so right after that, that happened, I guess. So when, when, sorry, I'll backtrack a little bit. So after I talked to Derek, I turned on the news and I was watching the news. I put baby Mozart on for Tyler in the other room. I was watching the news and my friend calls me. So I was on the phone with her when the building, when I saw the plane come in, but how it was, was it was the view of the plane came in from one side, the burning building was on the other side and it exploded. And I thought, how did that building catch fire from that building when they're so far apart? This is all what I'm thinking in my head. She said, I made this guttural sound that she's never heard in her life since then or before then that it was. And I think it was just my grief or my knowing inside that that was not good, but didn't know how to process it. I remember falling to my knees on the floor and the dog started licking my face and Tyler came in and started laughing at me and I turned the TV and then I had friends come over. I had one friend whose parents were touring the Pentagon that day. So she was trying to reach her parents. Yeah. And then my other friend came over and they set up Tyler. She said, you need to call your mom. And my mom's a worrier. So I was like, oh, no, 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 I'm not calling my mom until I know what's going on. She's like, no, Kim, you need to call your mom. So my mom was at work at a daycare. And she said, what do you mean there's a terrorist attack? I'm like, mom, there's a terrorist attack. No, no, it's not a terrorist attack. So she was on her way. I guess my dad was on their, his way. I don't remember much. I remember going to take a shower and coming down the stairs. And my friend said, what building was Derek at? And I said, the second one, the one with the big antenna. And they had just looked at me and they said, oh, we need to talk to you. And then they brought me into the living room. They sat me down and they told me that the building had collapsed. And I had watched it. And and then in my head, I was um, thinking, okay, well, how many flights could he go down? How long would it take him to get from 89 to the ground? Maybe he made it out and didn't die. Maybe he's in a hospital somewhere. And so then... The rest of the day was really, uh, I had a Christmas card list from his company and I was going through it to see who lived in the city, people I didn't even know, and trying different phone numbers of people that lived on the Upper West Side, the Upper East Side, like, oh, maybe they walked to somebody who lived in the city because they couldn't get out and didn't get a hold of anyone. Then I was calling women whose husbands were the executive the EVPs or and, and like on the board of trustees and, and stuff like that. Like, I mean, I never would have normally done that, but trying to see if they had heard anything from their husbands, a couple people didn't, hadn't gone into work. One had a, got a, a kindergartner. So he had a son that was going to kindergarten. So he didn't make it there that day. Another guy had gone to the Michael Jackson concert <laughs> the night before. So he missed, he was late for work, but he lived, you know? So, so anyway, I, I did not hear from anyone else. Uh, I think maybe Maybe I had heard at that point that this woman had heard from her husband. And so I had assumed, okay, so he he got down to this 82nd floor. Maybe he still got out. I'm not sure the timing on that because it's kind of a blur. And then my dad said to me that night before I went to bed, which I didn't really sleep, you want to go get his car at the train station? And I was like, well, he might need it to get home. And then I thought, Kim, he's if he's coming home, he's hurt. Like at that point, I realized, okay, he, maybe he's still alive and he's hurt and he's in a hospital. And the next day at seven, we went to the train station. I didn't know where he parked. So I'm trying to hit the button for the alarm to go off to try to find his car. 
And then I don't even remember, like I, I, oh, his dad called on the 11th. They were traveling. And so I couldn't reach them because again, people didn't have cell phones really. Oh yeah. And he said, tell me Derek was sick, homesick today. And I said, he wasn't, I'm sorry. And so they, they were devastated, but they were in, they lived in Florida, but were in Arizona. And so they couldn't get back to Florida to come to Connecticut. They had to drive because they couldn't get on a flight. Because mm-hmm. all the planes are grounded. His brother called me at 9.30. And he lived in uh, California. So it was like 6.30. He was on his way to work. And he's like, Kim, have you heard from Derek? And, you know, having to tell his parents was hard. And his brother was very hard. Um, his brother ended up driving cross country to come to Connecticut to wait to see what was happening. Mm. And so, I don't know. In my mind, I decided we needed to have a service. And so I had a service on the 21st. I was one of the first people to have a service. And even during the service, I was like, well, I don't think anyone would be mad at me if he walks through the door and he's okay, <laughs> you know, but because I was still in denial. I get, I, you know, I think your body protects you and I was pregnant. And I just think that it was too much for me to believe that he was dead. And so I didn't, I held out hope that he was still alive, but I kind of knew he wasn't, but you know, you just never know. How long did you hold hope out for? How long did you hold that hope out for? <sighs> I mean, I'd like to say even 11, 10 days later at the service, memorial service, I was thinking maybe he's still alive. I mean, I went to ground zero three weeks later wow. because it was surreal to me. I need to see it. And I remember I went with my dad and my sister and my dad's like, how come you're not crying? Because my sister and my dad were crying. And I just said, I'm just so like, I came here to make it real. And it's even more surreal because it's because I'm looking at this place and thinking, how could I believe that he was still alive? Because it was like, like war zone. You know, you had these giant holes in the ground, like car sizes. And you had all these people working there and the pile was so big and it was so dark and all the dust. And it was just so surreal that this really had happened. But even then it was, I think then I thought, gosh, how could I have been so stupid to think that he would have lived through this? But again, they didn't find anything. And so then I had this cockamamie story in my head that maybe, maybe, um, maybe he really had a girlfriend and this was a way for him to like go away to some island with some girl, you know, like you start concocting, like how could he have lived or like yes. maybe he had the secret life I didn't know about. And it wasn't until May, his birthday was in May, May of 2002, that uh, they found his remain right before they closed ground zero. And what it was, was a inch and a half bone from his ring finger of his right hand, I think it was. But but initially, when I got the forensic report, it's from a um, archaeologist forensic, I don't know, something weird that I didn't even know that was a real job. But the person, I thought it was a toe. And so there's this random story that I, have you ever heard of Morton's toe or Sprinter's toe where your second toe is longer than your big toe? Yes. Okay. I have that. (laughs) So, so I have that. Okay. But Derek called it the alien toe. Oh, and so the first thing when Tyler came out, yeah, he was like, oh, does he have the alien toe? No, his toe's fine because Derek didn't have it and Chase has it. Anyway, so I thought it was kind of funny that of all his whole body, they find piece of his job. <laughs> like that was kind of like Derek saying like you know haha Kim but it wasn't a toe I didn't find out until like the next January when I called up to see if they had found more remains that it was a, fin- hand, a hand bone it was a meta 
metatarsal instead of whatever the toe is. And they were like, oh no. And then they sent me this report and I was like, oh, okay. So, but even then, and this is interesting too, because Tyler had the same block. So sometimes I would think, oh, maybe Derek's still alive in Big Nokim. They found one of his bones. He's clearly not alive anymore. And then I would think, well, what if he was alive, but he just lost his hand or, I mean, this is, you know, like a year later or more, I think, you know, with grief, you're processing things as your body can take it in, like even, even physically, emotional, whatever it is. And I think that in time, I mean, I knew logically that wouldn't be possible, but you know, it's coming to through denial to, to that. And so even when Tyler was, I don't know, 10 or 12, and we would talk, he goes, well, maybe he's still out there and he just doesn't have his hands. And it was interesting because that was exactly what I had thought. And I think, I just think it's your body's way of protecting you from more information than you can process at that time. So, but then I would remind myself they found it. And and then that was confirmation. Yes, he's dead. And I need to accept that. And so I, I was glad for that uh, closure. I, the, I don't have the remain. It's in New York. It's the museum. There's a room yeah. a repository of, of all the remains. Because that was another weird situation where in Connecticut, you can't, they couldn't only release it to a funeral home. So I had to go to a funeral home and the funeral home director said to me, well, it's, it's like an inch and a half bone. You can't, I'm not going to cremate this for you. I mean, I guess I could just give it to you. I'm not supposed to, but I said, no, we'll just keep it in New York. And then if I get more, I might bury something someday, but we never got anything else. So, so that's where it is. So the kids and I went 2020, January, 2020, finally to the museum and to that room uh, we didn't, you know, it's a room with all these cabinets and there's a glass window you look through. So you don't really see anything, but just I was the idea ask, that there could be that many remains is crazy. I, I was going to ask you about that because I've been to the museum and I, you, you, as someone who is not a family member of a, uh, someone who perished in the attacks, you can look into this room and you're told that that's where the remains are. Are you able to go into that room physically? Mm-mm. Oh, you're no. Not. So okay. now where did you? So did you see, you saw the room, you could look into it. It, I, there was, it was like a, it was some window. That's what I remember. There's some window um, that you can kind of look in and, and you're not, it, it, you're not seeing much. You're told that there are remains in there, but okay. I think you're not quite sure what you're looking at. So where we went was called the family room. And so it's, it's a room connected to the room with the cabinets and there's a glass window and you see cabinets upon cabinets. I probably have a picture of it somewhere. and. But I guess I do remember there's something and they say behind this wall or behind this something is where all the remains are. That's what it is. Okay. That's right. Okay. okay. So, so we don't see much more than you do. We okay. just see, we're just in a room where we can observe. You know, I, I want to share something else too. So Kim and I went to high school together and after we graduated high school, we did not see each other again for 12 years. Right. And we reconnected through a a volunteer organization that we were both mm-hmm. part of called the Junior League. So I had heard through some people in the Junior League that Derek had passed away in, in, in you know, the 9-11 attacks. And I went to the funeral and I don't, I didn't remember how long it was because I know that there were so many people who didn't have remains that were waiting and waiting and holding out hope. And I did, you know, couldn't blame them at all. But what I remember about going to the church was first of all, how incredibly crowded the parking lot was, how incredibly mm-hmm. crowded the church was. And the, I'm sorry, the number of 
police officers there and firefighters there. And I don't think that Derek had any connection to them other than they were in the same town. And I have a feeling they were going to go to every funeral that um, of people who were lost during the terrorist attacks. It was it's overwhelming to me now to think about it, but it was overwhelming. Then. It was it was it was amazing. It was such an outpouring of support. And I wondered, I was thinking about this recently. I'm like, number one, I, you know, I, I, I wonder if Kim even remembers all that, what you remember, because I can only imagine you were just probably still in shock. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, this is the next step of what, what I have to do and, and go through and, you know, for my family and his family and my kids. And, and just like, if you remembered all of that and what you remembered from that, it was just, it really was so heartwarming to see the support from the entire community. From, and I had never met Derek, but, you know, there were so many people there, whether they knew him or not, that wanted to show their support. I mean, it was, I, I it was overwhelming. I mean, you're absolutely right. And and they had, someone had asked me, I don't know if it was the church, if I want, if I wanted a color guard for him. And that was why the police and the fire were there, but they um, offered it because he was not military. He was not law enforcement or fire or anything. And so what do I, I remember bits and pieces, snippets of things. It's almost like a movie reel, almost like I was removed from my body and watching it from the outside. <laughs> a, a lot of things during that time. I've since talked to friends, very close friends that I knew then. And we would go, we would talk about like, well, what was it like? And they remind me of things that I don't remember. Or this is when I showed up at your house. This is what happened. And I, you were upstairs and I, you know, when you came down, we told you the building had fallen and I mean, people have kind of filled in the pieces for me that maybe I didn't remember in terms of the, the fire and the police. So when they found Derek's remains, typically what they would do is they would call the local law enforcement and someone would get dispatched from local law enforcement and they would show up at your front door and tell you that they found the remains. And so I had been at another widow's house and it was eight o'clock on a Friday night, probably Thursday night. I couldn't call in the next morning. And um, I show up at my house and there's a policeman, but there's Monsignor from my church. And I'm like, what is that man doing here? And I'm thinking, oh, maybe the guy, the kid across the street got in some trouble or something. <laughs> I still, you know, it's May. I'm not thinking about, you know, oh, they're finally showing up to tell me they have Derek's remains. So what had happened was they contacted local, New York had contacted law enforcement, the medical examiner's office of New York, law enforcement said, hey, I remember being at her ser- at his service. They had that service at St. Matthew's Church. And so then they called St. Matthew's because they didn't want to come by themselves because they were nervous to talk to me about it because they were telling me they found my husband's remains. So I come up there. They start to tell me we have news from New York. I must have invited them in. I mean, they were very distraught. Like I was comforting them like no no it's okay i totally get this this is what happened i'll call them tomorrow <laughs> like, i'll call tomorrow and i'll find out what it is and like it's not it's, it's okay it was, oh. it, i mean it was it was kind of funny because i was comforting them and so of them comforting me but but i guess at the time you know a lot of people worked behind the scenes and did pay attention to things and knew things and that was how that had worked out and at the time that they came to your house, if I'm putting the timeline together, you have a two-year-old and a nine-month-old? About five months. So Chase is my second one. So he was born January 2nd of 2002. Um, my five-year anniversary would have been, or no, four-year anniversary would have been January 3rd, 2002. 
I gave birth to him at Greenwich Hospital in Connecticut. And Greenwich Hospital had this tradition where the night before you're discharged, you get a steak or a lobster dinner, you and your spouse or father or partner, whatever. <laughs> so I thought that was interesting because so what would have been my anniversary, I was having lobster with my mother because Derek wasn't there. But giving birth to Chase was bittersweet because Derek wasn't there. And so, you know, I have a picture of Chase in the bassinet in the hospital with a picture of Derek in the background. My sisters and one of my friends uh, was in the delivery room with me. I mean, it was an easy birth, so that was okay. But it was just, it was hard. And then Chase had gotten sick and had to be in the hospital. But Tyler had some virus, so I couldn't go to the hospital because then I got sick. And so like, this was when he was a week old. So there were some challenges in the beginning. but you know, we, we got through it. So that was important. I, I lived near my family. I was grateful that I had my family and my friends. I mean, talk about the community rallying around you. I mean, between the organizations that I was in, just people I didn't even know, the outpouring of support was immense and overwhelming. And I think I mean, this is something that, that changed me because of it. Because I, I was always kind of a person who was taught to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, you know, you don't rely on other people. If people do things for you, then you pay them back. And, you know, very prideful really is what it is. And I remember people bringing stuff over and contacting me and doing things. And I was like, how am I ever going to pay all these people back? Like, no, I can't accept this, these gifts from them. And that was when it occurred to me that that's like God's grace, right? It's a welcome gift that you get that you don't deserve and you get it. And that was what was bestowed upon me from all these people and that I knew I would do the same to other people. So, I mean, there I never wrote all my thank you notes. I still feel guilty about that. <laughs> For oh. all the people, whether somebody had sent me like a $5 check or whatever, I had thank you notes upon thank you notes to write and I never wrote them. And finally, when I moved, I was like, I'm, I'm just not going to do it. And I did feel guilty about that. But Kim, if someone is holding you know, a yeah. grudge because you didn't <laughs> send a thank you note, you know, shame on them. <laughs> Come on. And, and you can well, thank they, them now. <laughs> There you you can thank them right now. I'm telling the story to say thank you. <laughs> thank you. So part, part of, of that outpouring, it, a few widows and I got together and started this organization called September Smiles, which was a nonprofit designed to help young widows that from a sudden death of their spouse. And because a lot of us had husbands that were working in banking, we had means you know, then we had the outpouring of support of our nation, but people die all the time and nobody remembers or, you know, 30 days later, they're not thinking about you. I mean, it could be six months later. I had then had chase. I mean, I had meals for like months because people wanted to do something. Right. And so they did something. And so the idea was that these, uh, that we widows would shower other people with love, with money, with gifts, just with support. We wrote a book called What to Do Next, you know, because I was 30 years old. What did I know? I mean, Derek had a will. He had life insurance. I mean, the, the attorney was shocked because most of the people, I mean, there were people that were in their 40s that didn't even have that. But so, I mean, I was in a good situation, but not everybody is. And I mean, there were stories, there were widows, one woman, they were at the beach on vacation in New Jersey. And she had lost an earring or something. And her husband went back down to the beach during a storm and he was struck by lightning. And that sticks with me. Oh, There were, we did a lot with military widows only because they were easy to track because there was a, a you know, people 
you could get a list from people and, and you could find out and then you could send stuff to them. Whereas some of the other people, it was word of mouth and, and we hadn't really grown that big. So 20, we did that for many years. I don't know when we actually stopped, but I think we had, we realized it had come to an end and it was something that helped us grieve, but also helped other people that might not have resources otherwise. So, so Kim, you, I, I want you to put this together for us. You're in a pool with your friend who's a single mom and you look Mm -hmm. at her and you say, I don't know how you do it. I could never live without Derek. Here I am. I have a baby and I'm pregnant and I'm watching you and I could never do what you're doing. How do you Mm -hmm. go from that place of saying I could never do it to where you are now helping others go through their grief? And and you look like a happy person to me. Although what happened <laughs> yeah. to you is tragic, you look like you're a pretty awesome functioning adult. How do you, how do you do that? How do you go from that place? I can never do it. And then the unimaginable happens to you. And then here you are, you got remarried and, and divorced. And you made a comment to us offline that divorce was even harder than death. So you've had your share of shit thrown at you more than most of us have in a lifetime. And here you are happy. Tell us how you do that. I mean, the grace of God. I have to say, I am i wouldn't say I'm super religious, but, but spiritual and really, I relied a lot on God during those times. You know, there's a serenity prayer. Uh, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Um, that was a mantra for me in the beginning. I had never done 12 step meetings at that point, but, but there's, you know, one day at a time, one minute at a time, you know, it was really just like, I just need to get through today. I had the kids. I mean, I'll be honest that Derek's service was on a Friday and the next, and there were people in town. So I was still talking to people, you know, visiting with people. The next day, everybody left and I didn't want to get out of bed. And I remember Derek's parents telling my mother they were concerned about me. And I was thinking, I have been on for 10 days. I've had people in and out of my house, people staying with me. Like, I just needed a day to lose it, you know, and to not do anything and grieve. And But I also remember that day, Derek's parents took Tyler for a walk. And they, I let them out through the garage door, the side door. And I closed the door and I looked at the car and I thought to myself, I bet I could turn on that car and I could just sit here. Maybe I could just end it. And then I was like, oh, I have Chase inside of me. I can't do that. And that was the only time, but I did have that thought because I did think, and I thought then Tyler would have nobody. I mean, if I didn't have my kids, I wouldn't have gotten through it. I did it for my kids, right? Wow. I didn't want them to lose me too and have nobody. And I think that's been what's driven me a lot was um, honoring Derek through the kids and being there for my kids. It's not been easy, but, you know, when you're 30 years old and you go through the hardest thing that's ever happened in your life, because that probably even with the divorce, that that is still the biggest event. But I remember afterwards, that event changed me. I used to be a people pleaser and I just didn't say no to people and I didn't say no to doing things. And, and you know, that time gave me permission because, you know, I was supposed to lead an event the next week. I said, I don't think I'm going to lead. Kim, don't worry about it. No one's going to, no one's going to be upset that you're not leading that event. And so it was just kind of like, I got to say no, and I got to find my voice and that maybe I would have 
found my voice later. I think that's what your 30s are for. But I found it at 30 and I became very empowered. Like, I can say no. I can say no. I can do whatever I want. <laughs> you know, I can just, and, and no one's going to say anything. And so that really helped me grow as a person. I wouldn't say I'm glad that happened to me, but I think I'm a better person today because of what happened to me. Mm. I think, you know, I lived in Fairfield County, Connecticut. I lived in an area where people were very concerned with appearances and what people have and everything else. And you know what? I lost my husband and yeah, my life sucks. <laughs> and so this is just what you have, right? And so so kind of, I got tired of having pretenses. I didn't need to have pretenses anymore. Like, you know, I would have women not look at me, look away when I walk by. And I know why. I know it's because they were thinking that could have been me, right? I became this person that could have been anybody else because it was a random act of violence. And if your husband worked there and was in a different floor or whatever, it could have been you. And nobody wants to look in the mirror and say, what would I do in that situation? It was like me with my friend in the pool. And I said, I, I don't know what I would do. The thing is, nobody thinks they could do that, but it's a choice, right? It's, it, it's a choice. You have a choice to wallow. And sometimes I did, you know, or, or you have a choice to move forward. And I just felt like I needed to be strong. I needed to move forward for my kids. I mean, I have been a strong person anyway. It's not like this came out of the blue, but you know, when push came to shove, I, you know, I, I stepped up. I think everybody has it in them because, I mean, if you want to survive, then you have to do what it takes to survive, right? And I didn't want to just survive. I wanted to thrive. And I think, I think the kids and I have had a good life. I think that they were raised a little bit differently because it wasn't like some families where their fish dies and the parent goes out and buys another fish because they don't want to talk about death with their kid. I didn't have that. You know, it was like dad, daddy went to work one day and he didn't come home and he died. You know, I, I mean, I remember driving through the Dunkin' Donuts drive-through in Norwalk and I told Tyler, mommy used to work in that building. He goes, no, mommy worked, no one building. So I think, you know, this little boy understood daddy went to work. It was in a building, building fell down, whatever. Like, I don't want my mom to go. Like, that's a lot for a little kid to have to process. And I probably should have protected him from it more. But I've always had this attitude with my kids where I'm going to be truthful with you. I will give you what I, if you're going to ask me a question, I'm not going to say, I might try to divert if I don't think you're ready for the answer, but I'm not going to lie to you. You know, I'm not going to say, oh, there was an accident and that on the train. Like I had a friend whose daughter didn't know until like seventh grade what actually happened or something because wow. she didn't tell her kid, you know, so, but my kids seem okay <laughs> for now. I mean, you know, they, they do say they appreciate it. And, and when we went to the 9-11, um, the Diane Sawyer special, we met other kids and my kids, I was very proud of them because I did feel like, you know what, moving out of the tri-state area was the best thing I did for them to raise them in North Carolina. And they're not pretentious. I mean, they could be, but they're pretty right on with things and just they're kind and I couldn't hope for some better kids. So it's awesome. That's awesome. Kim, you said something pretty profound while you were explaining all that to us. You said you think everybody has it in them. And while I agree with you that everybody might have it in them to get through something like that, I don't know that everybody can find it. I don't know that any, yeah. everybody yeah. can really go dig deep. And I bet you know plenty of people that were in your tribe from the event mm -hmm. that maybe couldn't find it and, and didn't have the same outcome. Kara and I heard a speaker about 9-11. He also is in 
the towers, I think he was in tower one. He described some, you know, he survived and he described people that really couldn't survive the way he did or the way you are. And, you know, so yes, we all might have it in us, but not everyone can find it. And, and again, thank you for sharing your story because this will hopefully help other people find it within them. I really appreciate that. I think, yes, I found it then, but then I will admit to you, once I was remarried and I wanted to get divorced, I wasn't going to get divorced because I thought it was going to be too hard. And it was kind of one of these come to Jesus moments where I was like, you were 30 years old and the worst thing happened to you. Like, you can do this. It's just going to be really hard. And you need to put your big girl panties on and you need to do it. And and so I think, I don't want to say I became complacent, but I think, you know, you get, I see... I see what you mean about people that might think they don't have it in them because I did think that myself the second time around. Like, I don't think I can do this. I can't go through this. And I had to tell myself, yeah, you can. And I think that would be really what someone, someone would have to to know they have the courage. I mean, I was, the first thing is I was forced with Derek and his death, right? I didn't have a choice in that. I had a choice with the divorce. I didn't want to be divorced. You know, I had kids. I had, you know, therapists tell me it was going to be bad for the kids, bad for the kids, whether they're two years old, they're five years old, they're 17, or they're 35 years old. Divorce is never going to be great, right? But you can't, you know, am I going to live my life in in a situation that is not honoring myself and my family? And am I going to put up with that? Or am I going to do something different? And, you know, it was hard. I'm now a year three years out from separating and a year and a half from divorce. And it was worse than death because that person is still around, right? <laughs> and you failed with the, with uh, losing a spouse. You don't bear the burden of that. You didn't do something to cause that relationship to not succeed, right? That was beyond your control. With a divorce, we have choices. And, you know, maybe we don't always make the best choices or maybe other people don't make the best choices, but we always have a choice. And so do you choose life and maybe have to struggle a little bit and rip the bandaid off and it's going to hurt? Or do you just stay stuck? And a lot of people stay stuck. I mean, I do recognize that a lot of people stay stuck and a lot of people have to stay stuck. They may not have means to, to do it, to take chance. But I think that people have courage if they dig deep and they're willing to do the work to discover themselves and things about themselves. And I've done a lot of work, so made it a little bit easier. As have we. Yeah. Choosing courage over comfort, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. that's, that's what it's about. But see, now I'm 50. And I think that, you know, every decade you learn something new and you get more courage and, and you know what's important in life and what's not important in life. So I like that thought. I like to think I'm getting wiser with every decade that goes by. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Kim, I want to ask you about the end of life doula. You Okay. Okay, you're looking to become one. So this has to do with grief, right? And and I love that you've put your experience to uh use in in helping others. Can you explain what that is and how how you're going to do that work? Yes. So I, Derek died suddenly. I, I, I have never been someone, I've told my own parents, I've since taken it back, that you know what, when you get old and you need someone to take care of you, one of my sisters is going to have to do that because that's not my thing. I'm not 
I'm just going to tell you the truth. I mean, I'm not, I mean, I'm nurturing my kids and stuff, but like, I've never been a nurse. I never want to be a nurse. I don't have any, you know, like that's just scary to me. Right. So, but as I get older, that becomes easier and that has somewhat changed. Uh, I had a, a good friend who had been diagnosed with cancer and she had wanted to go on a trip to the Grand Canyon. And so last summer she said, I had don't think I have long, but I'll let you know when I want you to plan this trip because I love planning trips and I'd been to the Grand Canyon. And so in early October last year, she called me and said, I need you to plan this trip. And I said, well, when do you want to go? And she said, like in three weeks. So I said, okay, you know, it's during COVID and we have to travel and then the Grand Canyon snows early, you know, so, so the end of October. And so I saw, I went up to Virginia. We planned it early October, three weeks later, I land in Phoenix and I see her and her family and she's flown from Virginia and she does not look good at all. Okay. And um, we get to the hotel because we're going to spend the night there and leave the next morning for the Grand Canyon. And she had a seizure and a lot of stuff happened while we were there that I've never had to deal with before that became very uncomfortable, very clear that we shouldn't have gone, but we were there. We made alternate plans for her to get home because she wasn't going to be able to fly home. Her husband was going to drive her home. We drive. She still wants to go. So we go to the Grand Canyon the next day and we get there at sunset and she's too weak to go see the Grand Canyon. I'll go tomorrow. And I said, well, the low, the high tomorrow is only 36. And when we left on Saturday, the low was going to be 36, not the high. So it was kind of like we weren't exactly prepared. She wasn't prepared. So I stayed in the room with her that night and it was clear it didn't seem that I don't know. I've never really experienced being with someone towards the end of life. But a long story short, it became clear that things were really not good at all. And I told her husband she needed to take get an air ambulance and take her home because she needed to get home and be made comfortable. But again, I'm not familiar with all that. But just being with her and sitting with her and the family, because they hadn't really been dealing with it either. And I had like before I left, the husband stayed at the Grand Canyon with her and I was taking their daughters to the airport in Phoenix the next day. So we were driving to Phoenix. And I, before we left, I said to them, you need to go tell your mom, don't leave anything left unsaid. We don't know what's going to happen. I didn't think she was going to die, but you don't know. And so they went, they talked to her. Well, on our drive back to Phoenix, she died in the hotel room with her husband. So I get to Phoenix and he calls me, he texts me. Are you still with the girls? I said, no, I'm in my room. And he said, she died. And I was just like, I mean, the whole experience was very unexpected, but I knew I had been placed in that situation. God had placed me in that situation for a reason. Cause I kept saying to her, I don't want to go. You go with your family. No, you need to go. And I do think I needed to be there. I needed to be there for the girls. I needed to be there for her husband. And it was just, even before I left, I had prayed with her and she sat up in bed and she was the old, the old person that I knew when we were younger. And she's like, it is going to be so awesome. And she said it very cognizant, very smiling, very looked very healthy. And then she went back down and then she looked, she was sick again. And it was the weirdest thing. And I thought, oh yeah, that, that inner ambulance ride is going to be really interesting. And, and, you know, and she said a lot of things because she was in and out, but afterwards I thought she knew she was going to die. She knew she was, gonna, she probably saw something because I've read some death doula books and the like doula books. And I realized that, you know, it, it taps into my, my faith and spirituality 
And I, if anyone was, I mean, if she had to, her family had to be with anyone, like her husband, she, she was with me the night I met Derek and she and her husband were in the outer banks with her, with us before the week before Derek died. And she and her husband, we had gone to a Yankees game with Derek before I conceived Chase. Like they've kind of been in and out of our life. And so it's interesting to me. I've only had two people die that were close to me that were my age. And one was Derek and one was his friend this past year. But the experience, you know, you don't have to say anything. You just have to be present for someone. And I think as you near the end of life, people are scared of that, right? And they don't want to deal with it. And and so a death duel is someone who is present for the person who's dying, for the family. I recently went to a death cafe where they have wow. meetings called death cafes. And we, we met outside in the cemetery. They're not always in cemeteries, but there were other end of life doulas there. And basically, if you think about it, you plan everything in your life. You plan when you're getting married and when you're having a baby and your reveal party and all this different stuff, but nobody really talks about death. Death is never really talked about. It's kind of, but it all, it's going to happen to all of us. It's something that happens to all of us, but it's very taboo. And so the idea is to normalize death, to have conversations about death and what you want for your death before you're in a position where you can't tell anyone. You know, my friend had never gotten into hospice. She thought she still had six months. I don't, I think maybe every other people knew, but they might've been in denial. And so it, you know, if she had had someone there to talk with the family or to kind of be this go-between, I mean, you're not, I mean, you're also helping like some death doulas help people put together books. Like I was telling her, let's write a letter to your kids. We never got to that. We thought we were going to, but then she was too sick. So for a video or something. And so that's really what a death doula does. You know, you have doulas that bring midwives, bring the babies in and doulas. And so I don't know, I, I found out about it and I thought, yeah, I could see myself doing that. I could see myself working with hospice and, and being a, a doula of some sort. I, I keep coming back to, I'm involved with different things that involve grief and whether even my divorce, you know, that that divorce brought up stuff in my grief process about Derek. You know, my being an empty nester without Derek and thinking, wow, what would it have been like now we could have been together? And, you know, there are different stages of grief and you go through different periods of it. And it's not, it's fluid. It's not like you, it's not logical and like one step at a time, you might go backwards before you go forwards. And I think seeing my friend's husband and just remembering in the beginning, waking up and for that split second when you don't remember, and then you remember, oh no, Derek this happened and this is a nightmare and this is real. And then it's sick, like sick to your stomach. I didn't want to eat. I just thought I was going to be sick all the time. And then one day you laugh and you feel a little bad. Like I just laughed, but Derek's dead. But actually it felt good to laugh, you know? So you kind of, you know, you go through different periods and have different feelings. And and 20 years later, those feelings can still come up. I mean, something happened the other day. I don't even remember what it was. It used to be events for the kids. So like Derek's, uh, Tyler's birthday every year, Chase's birthday, graduations, and then that got easier. But there are, there are just little things that happen or the kids have mannerisms of Derek. And I'll think, well, that must be genetic because you haven't spent any time with him to know that he raises the eyebrow that way, or he does something with his shoulder, you know, but they, it's, that's been cool to see. 
I don't know. So that's so it's about remembering someone. The death doula helps with that too. So I don't know. I just feel like that's something. I'm very I'm very big on mind, body, spirit, soul connection. How even when you're like Tyler was year old when Derek died, so you would think he doesn't really have memories of that. But then we right. go to the museum and he's very quiet. And then we go into the room and you hear the sounds and you see the pictures and he is visibly upset. And I said, do you want to hug? This is my kid who doesn't hug me ever. Hugs me in this museum and balls. I mean, we were like, people were around us. This is a kid who doesn't show express any feelings. And it was just like the floodgates opened because I think even though he might not remember here, your body remembers and holds that. Yeah. You know, that's part of the trauma, right? But I think we don't give enough credit to that part of, oh, they're too young. They don't remember, you know, oh, he wasn't affected. He doesn't remember. But I think that, that proved to me that he does remember. And so you know, I think it's important for people to have mental health and physical health and, you know, not discount the spirit and the, the mind in terms of grief, the process. So thank you, Kim. Thank you, Kim, so much for sharing your story with us today. Thank you for helping us understand from your perspective what that loss was like. And thank you for creating a survival guide for someone else. I hope that they'll be able to find it within them the way you found it within you. Thank you so much, Kim. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You are brave, girl. That's why you're here. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. We hope this podcast has inspired and empowered you to overcome what might be holding you back from living your best life. If you love this podcast, please share it with a woman you know who needs a little empowerment. Now go out in the world and be bold, be brave, be you. Perfectly imperfect you. With love, Kara and Patty. But I wonder what would happen if you say what you want to say. again and then you know he'll snip it out mixed and edited by desmond mcneese